Well, I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 11. As most of you know, we've been uh, going through the uh, book of Hebrews and uh, we have come to chapter 11, kind of slowing down a little bit, but I figure now's a good time to remind you again of the theme of Hebrews. Do we have it up there? Yeah, the Hebrews theme is um, Jesus is better, so press on. You just look at all the ways the book of Hebrews speaks about how much better Jesus is. And uh, he is, His revelation is better in the sense that He has come in the flesh, come in person to reveal Himself to us. He is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron and any of the high priests. He's better than Abraham. You stack up anybody in the Old Testament and Jesus is better than him. You put the work of Jesus together and His sacrifice is better, which brings in a new covenant. And because of that, because Jesus is better, we're called to press on. And um, because of that, we should press on really in our faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 speaks about. We have need of endurance. We have need to continue on. And uh, Hebrews 11 is a call for us to believe like the saints of old did. We've seen in recent weeks, we've seen Abel. We have seen Enoch, we've seen Noah, and last week we saw Abraham and Sarah, even touching a little bit upon Jacob and uh, Isaac as well. And this morning we come, our, our text is verses 13 through 16, it's a, it's a parenthetical portion of Hebrews 11 where the writer really reflects upon the nature of faith, particularly upon the nature of the faith of the patriarchs. So I want to read it for you here this morning, and uh, we'll commit our time to the Lord. Hebrews 11, verse 13 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, this morning we don't look at the faith of uh, particular people and particular things they did. However, we have a group of people here who... uh, God really sought things beyond this life. And I would pray, O Lord, that You might help us, stir us to imitate their faith in these things. There's much to teach us here of how they were pilgrims and aliens and strangers. And God, how they were not attached to this world. So I pray that You would focus our attention upon the the heavenly city they sought for and that You would help us to, to travel there and to know that we are just passing through on our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you go on a journey, uh, it's most often, unless you, the journey is the destination itself, it's most often the destination that you have in mind. Right? And as you have your destination in mind, any pleasantries that you meet along the way are only briefly enjoyed. So if you are going on a journey someplace and you happen to spend an overnight in a nice hotel room, you know that that's only a brief stop along the way. If you have a nice plane ride and have a beautiful view and and taste some nice meals on the way, however enjoyable they are, you only enjoy them for a moment because soon after that you need to press on and go towards your end. 
Because a traveler doesn't ever stay along en route because it's the end of the journey that he has in mind. And so also, as Christians, our life, you can, you can picture it as a traveling metaphor. We know that this earthly scene where we live here is, is transitory. We know that we are headed for a heavenly home. And so any pleasures that we have here on earth, and there are pleasures to be enjoyed for sure, and we ought to enjoy them, but only for a moment because our true destination is in heaven with Christ. And the saints of old in the Old Testament understood this same dynamic. They also um, had just pleasures here on earth they enjoyed for a moment, but they were seeking for themselves a better country. In fact, that's what verse 16 says. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Even the the saints of old desired a a heavenly country. It It was a better country. The title of my message this morning is picked up from this little phrase here in verse 16. Desiring a better country or or seeking a better country. I forget. Yeah, seeking a better country is how I put it. Uh, Of just pursuing something which is better than here on earth. And that's what the saints of the Old Testament did. I want to show you three ways in which they demonstrated they were seeking a better country. First one comes here in verse 13. Those of the Old Covenant were dying in faith. They were dying in faith. That's what we see in verse 13. All these died in faith. Now, the emphasis in Hebrews chapter 11 isn't upon people dying, for sure. It's on how they lived. It's on how Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. It's on how Enoch walked with God. It's on how Noah built this big ark to save his household from the flood and destruction that was coming. It's how Abraham went out to be the promised land. It's how Sarah believed and had ability then to conceive a child. The emphasis in Hebrews 11 is how they, they lived, but the emphasis here in verse 13 is really how they died, and particularly how they, they died in faith, trusting the Lord. All these died in faith. Now, particularly here in verse 13, we say all these. We're talking about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, they were the ones who just spoken about in the previous section, uh, particularly like verse 9 speaks about all of them. Um, but they were the ones who received the priority promises of God. They were the ones who left the country and had an opportunity to return, as verse 15 speaks about. And they were the ones actually who died, unlike Enoch who didn't die. It's primarily talking about the patriarchs, the, the fathers of the faith, the fathers of the people of Israel. All came through Abraham. And though Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, it was through Isaac that your descendants would be called. And Isaac, though he had two sons, Jacob and Esau, it was through Jacob that the children of Israel came. The twelve tribes came from the twelve sons of Jacob. And so all these are the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they died in faith. And they died believing the promise of God, even though they never received them. That's what verse 13 says. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Now, we talked about this a bit last week from verse 9. When you see that verse 9, we see that Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So here we can see Abraham, we see Isaac and Jacob who were tent dwellers. They were campers. They were not permanent residents. They nowhere had a house. They only had tents. They never received the land that was promised to Abraham. And when Abraham arrived in the promised land, God did say to him, all this land that you will see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. But not only was it to Abraham was given, it was also the same promise given to Isaac and to Jacob. To Isaac, God said in Genesis 26, verse 3, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give you these lands. 
And then to Jacob, Genesis 28, verse 13, he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. And yet, according to verse 9, they never received the land. They were dwelling in tents as in a foreign land. And they died believing the promise that they would receive, believing that the descendants would receive, although they themselves never did. They were, even as verse 10 says, looking for a city, Abraham was, whose foundations, architect and builder of God, like a precursor. He's looking for, for a God-built city. And of course, that comes in Revelation 21 and 22. They died looking for a city. And when you think about application for us, it comes almost straight out of this text. Will you be like this? When you come to die, will you die in faith, believing and trusting in God. To be sure, Hebrews 11 speaks about how we need to be like those who come before us. And here, the applications in our death, are we going to be like that? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob all died in faith, even though they never fully received everything that was promised. So, let me ask you this. The day when you come to die, even if you never receive everything that you wanted or hoped for, Will you still die in faith? Will you be like Job who says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. When it comes the day that you die, will you, will you be able to say, maybe stricken with cancer and dying young, maybe you say, Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Will you be like Jesus? who when he was coming to his death, wanting it to pass, and said, let this cup pass for me. But he said, nevertheless, not what I will, O Lord, but what you will. He he gave it to the Father by faith in many ways, an example for us. Can you say with Paul, after having a thorn in his flesh, and it was annoying him, and it was bothering him, three times beseeching the Lord, that it might return from him, and it never did. And then he said, when God said, my grace is sufficient for you, then he said, most gladly then I will rejoice. I will boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Will you rejoice, even to your dying day, of thorns in your flesh that God chose never to remove? Will you, when standing up for what's right, can you say with Esther, when going in to see the king, to plead mercy on her people, the Jews, if I perish, I perish. Can you say that? Because that's essentially what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were saying, they're dying in faith, dying believing God, even though God had not brought everything to them in, in their life. And so maybe put it a different way, are you following the Lord only for the things that you get in this life, only for the blessings, are you following the Lord regardless of your lot in life? Will you die in faith? Because difficulties will come. And it's, actually, it's during those difficulties and during times of difficulties can oftentimes be the means by which you show forth your faith in God. It's easy to praise God when things are going well. But when things are difficult, we pursue the Lord into the end, even to your own hurt. So I think that's some of what's talking about here. People dying in faith without receiving the promises. Oh, well, they, they saw them, but they never, never able to settle completely in the land. They, they never had rest. They were in a strange land surrounded by strange people. They had a hope that God would bless the world through them. 
Genesis 12, verse 3, In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's indeed come about. They had a, a hope that the descendants would take the land. Indeed, they did. In coming generations, they, they took over the land of Israel. They had a hope with that. They, they had a hope that there would be a, a great blessing. That God would bless them and they received that. But they didn't receive everything. But yet, even though they didn't receive everything, they still trusted in God. In many ways, that's, that's the great reality of everyone in Hebrews 11, by the way. Moses was never entered, able to enter the promised land. You remember, he got up to Mount Nebo, was able to look over. God says, look, there's the land. Okay, now you die here. He never got to enter the land. And also, for Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, they never fully received the promises either. In fact, that's, that's the whole point. Coming down here, verse 39. Look at that. And all of these, that is all the Old Testament saints who live by faith, and all these who gain their approval through their faith, who were who are benefited by their faith, God, God looked down upon their faith and approved them, all these people did not receive what was promised. None of them did. They stood like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never fully receiving the promises of God because they never saw the day of Jesus. But Jesus is the one who brought about the abundant blessings that we've come to share in. In fact, Hebrews chapter 8 spells out the blessings of the the new covenant that no longer does God deal with us basically externally on on religious righteous rules. Rather, what God does in the new covenant is He changes our heart and gives us a desire and a willingness to follow God no longer are we far off and exchanged from Him. Rather, we are brought near to Him. He's claimed us as people, Hebrews 8, verse 10. No longer does He hold our sins against us. Rather, in Christ, He says, they remember our sins no more. They are cast as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. And the Old Covenant saints could only look forward to the days of the New Covenant. Oh, they knew some blessings of God, but it didn't, didn't receive the full blessings of God. In fact... Um, that's the very words our writer used to describe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at, look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. So, so here's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not receiving, but, but being able to see them a long ways off and, and actually rejoicing with them. In, in fact, that's what Jesus said. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham, though dead and in heaven, then eventually saw the day of Jesus. And when he saw it, he rejoiced and was glad. In fact, that's even the verb we get here in verse 13 where it says, having seen them, having seen these promises, having welcomed them. This Greek word is aspazomai. I remember um, learning this word with some students in seminary and and the way we learned this word was, oh, just picture, you know, a Greek guy who was uh, small and, you know, real or Italian or something. Hey, aspazomai! Aspazomai! You know, welcoming him. That's what it is. That's a, a feel of this word. It's a, it's a greetings. It's a welcome. It's a happy. It's a joy. And that's what Abraham did, though he died in faith. He looked beyond and saw them and he greeted them hap- happily. How much different we are. Right? Because we have seen Jesus' day. We live in the new covenant. To his disciples, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and they did not see it. 
But we see it. Jesus Himself, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And we beheld His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen Jesus come in all His fullness. How much different we are, how much better advantage we are than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I just say, do you rejoice in those things? Do you gladly receive them of what, what the, the prophets only longed for? In 1 Peter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, Peter writes about our salvation. He says, as to the salvation, the, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The, these prophets were longing for understanding when Christ came. And then it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves in these things, but you, through whom the Holy Spirit has a has received and let you see these things. Things in which angels long to look. We are the envy of the saints of the Old Testament. Do you know that? They would have envied us. We are the study of the angels who long to see and understand the saving grace of God that they don't see and understand and know. Do you understand where you are? Believer in Christ? Think of the orphan in a third world land. Kids, I want you to listen up. An orphan in a third world land would give everything to live where you live. To have parents who love them. To have a school where they can go. To have the comforts around them. To have the opportunities in front of them. Whatever they want to do, they can do. But an orphan in a third world land is not that. And, and I do believe that if this were possible in some, some regard, that the saints of the Old Testament would, get it, would have given anything to have lived today. Post-Christ. Post-cross. To see the Messiah come. Do you realize where your blessings are? That's how they died. They died in faith anticipating and we can die even looking back. But, but there is even a straight application here because we can die looking forward too because as much as we have received in Jesus, there's still more to come because we live in between His comings. His, his first coming came, but, but we live here between His second coming. And there's a lot more that we can look forward to in His second coming. In His first coming, He just inaugurated the kingdom. In the second coming, He's going to bring it all to fulfillment. And on that day, when He, when he does finally bring everything to consummation, there's going to be fourfold hallelujah. It's going to be hallelujah, 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 hallelujah for the Lord God the Omnipotent reigneth. He reigns and He rules and we will be there with no more tears, no more death, no more crying or pain, no more curse. We will gladly serve Him on that day. There's lots that we can look forward to and it may well be that we may die only looking forward to that day like many of the saints of old. But what a great day it will be. What a great eternity it will be for us. So will you die in faith like the patriarchs did? Will you die looking and longing for the consummation of His kingdom? As Darren prayed, God, Your kingdom come. Will you die longing for His kingdom to come more in fullness, dying in faith, knowing that He will take you to Himself? Well, a life of faith will. Well, that's one lesson to learn from the text. My second point comes in verses 13-16. through 16. Not only were they dying in faith, but they are also living in hope. And uh, verses 13 through 16, my, my point here is uh, really the logic of the passage. But let's begin again in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed 
that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We've got to catch this. They, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Language pulls from Abraham when he was negotiating with the sons of Heth about the, the burial plot for Sarah. He confessed to these, these men. He said, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Let me buy this burial plot. Okay, so think about it. He's doing this when Sarah died. Sarah died when she was 127 years old. That puts Abraham at 137. He left for the land of Palestine when he was 75 years old. Okay, you do some quick math. I'll help you with it. Over 60 years he was in the promised land when he said this, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. 60 years in the land. And he considered himself... A visitor. He didn't consider himself a permanent resident. And then the writer, then in verse 14, draws the right implications. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of them of their own. So God had promised them to give Abraham the land of Canaan, which is where he was when he saw, said these things, but he never really settled down in the land, nor did he claim really the land. Instead, he considered himself to be an alien and a stranger. So he's looking for a country of his own. And, and where might that be? Well, verse 15 eliminates one possibility. And indeed, if he had been thinking of that country from which he went out, then he would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if Abraham considered his home country his destination, he could have returned there. In fact, they returned there several times. When Isaac needed a wife, he sent a servant up to Haran in Mesopotamia, which was a stop from early Chaldeans up to Mesopotamia before they came down. Go up there. There's some family members there, some people there. Go find a wife up there is what the servant was commanded and brought back Rebecca into the land. They could have easily just traveled up there. Or, or even Jacob, when he was looking for a wife, he went up again to Haran and to find a wife. And he got more than he bargained for, bringing back two and several maidservants as well. But he came back as soon as he could. He came back. Why? Because God had promised them the land of Canaan, but they still considered themselves aliens and strangers in Canaan. They considered that it wasn't Ur, it wasn't Haran. And you say, well then, where was it? Well, verse 16 says this, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, given the promise of the land, were still seeking a heavenly land we got that hint back in verse 10 also where it says that Abraham was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Looking for a city which was built by God. And that's the point. They were living in hope. Living for a better country. And verse 16 says that where that better country is, it's a heavenly country. They were living in hope of this country as verses 13 through 15 show. Not an earthly country because they were alien strangers here and it's not going back. Rather, it's a heavenly country. And the application comes straight to us, right? We, we also as Christians have a heavenly country that we are seeking as well. Peter calls us aliens and strangers in the world. 1 Peter 2.11 Jesus says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? In other words, it's not the earthly we seek. We should seek the heavenly Paul tells us to set our minds on the things above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. John tells us don't love the things or the things in the world. Why? Because our affection should be elsewhere. So I just ask you, where's your hope? Where's your affection? 
What are you seeking? Are you seeking an earthly city, an earthly kingdom? Are you seeking a heavenly kingdom? Jonathan Edwards used to tell his church often, this life ought so to be spent by us as only on a, a journey towards heaven. That's our life. We are on a journey towards heaven. It's the Negro spiritual said, this is not my home, I'm only passing through. See, they understood it because it wasn't so good for them. They understood they were just passing through going to heaven. And we have much to learn from those who are without. So listen, if your hope is on earth, you're going to make decisions consistent with that hope. If you hope in heaven, you'll make decisions consistent with that hope. Listen to the testimony of an early Christian. This was the epistle of Mathetus to Diogenetus. These are two obscure men. We don't know anything about them. We just have this remaining epistle from one to the other, a letter from one to the other. He said this, 2nd century, so 150 A.D., somewhere around there, 180 A.D., one wrote to the other, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow local customs and dress, food, and other respects of life, at the same time, so they they look like everyone else. They, They live the same place. They have the same customs. He says, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Participate as citizens, endure as foreigners. For every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign to them. What a great word, huh? Every country in which they live is their fatherland, but every fatherland in which they live is foreign to them. That's just how we ought to live. See, when your heart's in another place, it changes the way that you live. It it changes the choices you make. I, I read a great story this week of the Perez family. Arrestus Lorenzo Perez. It's a pilot in the Cuban Air Force. And I'm not sure if you remember hearing the story in the news, but in 1991, he drove his, flew his MiG-23 to Florida and defected to the United States. So you think about what it means to defect. It means that you leave your family behind. It means that you become a citizen of a new country. And so he left his wife and his two children, ten and six, back in Cuba. Now, before you think he was a selfish man, he, he told his wife before he left, he said, um, if in a year I'm not allowed to bring you to America from Cuba, I'll be back. I don't know how, but I'll be back for you and for the children and so over the next year, Lorenzo attempted to get his family in the United States. He, he did lots of things, public relations-wise. He went to Geneva, Switzerland, made a, a appeal to the world's help before the United Nations Human Rights Commission. It's pretty, pretty bold to be able to do that. It didn't work. He spoke personally with many hosts of dignitaries. He spoke with George Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev. None of that worked. The Cuban government continued to refuse to let his family go to the United States. And I mean, you can understand that. Otherwise, more and more are going to defect. So they're still in Cuba. And 
And there was a hope that they would be together. And so you, you think about living as an alien in a, in a land. You think about where the wife and kids, where their thoughts are. Their, their thoughts are with dad. They, they so long and want to, want to get there. And dad is so longing to get them. And so he came up with a plan. He was a pilot, so he purchased a twin engine, Cessna 310F, learned how to fly it. He was used to flying these big jets, and so he, he got this, uh, this Cessna prop plane they learned how to fly. And he figured and calculated, with some help of some friends, some Americans, figured that he could fly out of Florida, fly across the Gulf of Mexico, only a few feet above the water, so come in undetected by the radar, land on a road someplace, pick up his family, take off, and then fly back under the guise of darkness, still low to the ground. And um, he calculated his plan. Okay, so when do I need to leave so that I get there? I get there just at dusk. I get my family in and leave. So just have just enough light, but then it gets dark really quick so that the Cuban Air Force can't catch me. And he calculated I need to leave at 5.07 from an airport in, uh, um, in Florida. And so on a day in December 1992, somehow he was communicating with his wife, told her in code what they would do, told her he was coming. So they would tr- get on a bus and travel to the rendezvous point, which wasn't near where they were living. Uh, but they were supposed to wear bright colors, so you could easily spot them as you're coming down on the landing. And uh, listen to how one man described their, their rescue. He said this, He was approaching the land on the two-lane highway when he saw his wife on the left. As he had instructed, she and the children were wearing brightly colored clothes so he could spot them quickly. It had been 21 months since he had last seen them, and now... They were on the side of the road wearing fluorescent orange t-shirts and caps. Below them, a small car was moving in the same direction as the airplane. Several hundred yards ahead of it was a truck was approaching. Behind that was a bus he was trying to pass. Lorenzo planned to fly over the car and land on the highway between the car and the oncoming traffic when he noticed a large rock in the middle of the road. He didn't have room for a proper landing, but he knew there wasn't time for a second approach. So he overflew the car, raised his left wing to pass the rock, and then touched down. When the Cessna came to a stop, Lorenzo found himself staring directly at the truck driver who sat clutching the steering wheel, his eyes wide open, his mouth wide open. I read another account, he was about 10 feet away from choppers. Victoria didn't see her husband until the airplane was almost on the ground. She and the children had their backs turned to the Cessna as it approached and couldn't hear it because of the traffic on the highway. Now they ran towards the airplane, Victoria gripping her son's hands, and while his family was running to him, Lorenzo turned the Cessna around and then made another 90 degree turn to the left to keep the propellers away from his family. He opened the door on the starboard side and they scrambled up into the cockpit. Raynell, Alejandro, and finally his wife. Alejandro was barefooted because he'd lost both of his shoes while running. Puppy, puppy! The children cried as they tried to hug their father, but Lorenzo had to concentrate. He sternly ordered them to be quiet and to sit in the seats behind him. His family now aboard, Lorenzo hurried to close the door. Twice he tried and each time he failed... Calmate, calmate, his wife said. Calm down, calm down. The third try got the door closed. With the airplane's flaps set for short takeoff, Lorenzo began to accelerate down the highway. As the airspeed indicated, it showed 60 miles an hour. Miles an hour. Not fast enough for takeoff. Lorenzo could see the highway curve approaching. He pulled the yoke back slowly, and the airplane continued accelerating, gaining speed. Finally, the Cessna cleared the ground. We did it, Lorenzo thought. He retracted the landing gear. In the back seat, Victoria wrapped her arms around the boys and they recited the Lord's Prayer. It's a great story, huh? But I want you to think about the longings while they were apart from each other. Why go to such extremes like that? Why take such risk? 
because their heart was in a foreign land. They were living in hope that things would be better in America. And so willing to risk it all. If they were caught, they'd be in prison. Maybe executed for trying to defect. Maybe tortured. But think about what they left behind. The wife and children left everything behind. Houses, possessions, friends, even children, their shoes that fell off as they were running to get to this plane. All because their true love was in America and He'd come to rescue them and they were hoping for a better life while there. I say as believers in Christ, our hope ought not to be here in America, but our hope ought to be elsewhere in heaven. And we ought to forsake everything to get there. We ought to be willing to leave all behind the promises of the life to come are far greater than what we have here. In fact, even Darren read earlier for us in, in Luke chapter 18. In verse 18, where he just spoke about the, the sacrifice that is made. When he says this, verse 29, Truly, truly, I say to you that no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much in this life in the age to come eternal life. So I just ask you, are you living in hope? Are you living in hope for another life? Are you living in hope for a better life? Are your feet too planted here? The patriarchs were living in hope for a heavenly city. That's where we ought to as well. Well, patriarchs were dying in faith, living in hope. And finally, my third point, they were secure in God. That comes from the last phrase here in verse 16. It says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You can think about many things in life that are unsecure. Investments fall, they fail. Houses burn, goods are stolen, friends and relatives die, kingdoms fall, relationships are broken. But in verse 16, we see a security which is unmatched in all of creation. It's security of God's affirmation to us. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, the reference, primary reference here is, of course, to the patriarchs. But it does spill over to us. But the, the reference here to the patriarchs. God is not ashamed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not ashamed to be called their God. Think about how many times that, that God is talked about as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how God introduced Himself when going to Moses in the burning bush. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now just think about what God is saying. Here's the Almighty God of the universe willingly taking on the name of a person to say, I am His God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you, yes, I'm their God. They believed and trusted me and I will freely take their name upon myself. And I'm not ashamed to be called their God. The God of the universe taking on the name of frail men. Patriarchs. And by the way, He takes on our name too. He calls us His children. We are His children. You say, this is Steve Brandon's God. This is Phil Gusky's God. This is Carrie Witter's God. This is, He is our God. And God is, is not ashamed to take on our names in that regard. One commentator then asked rhetorically, what higher honor can one man have than that? And the answer, of course, is none. There's no honor higher than having our God not being ashamed to call us by His name. God delighted to take the name of the patriarchs and He also delights to take the name of, of all of the, those who believe. You see at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 about the new covenant covenant 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. I am their God. I'm the one. I will call them by their name. And listen, if God's not ashamed to take on our name, what does it mean of our hope for eternity? My point here is that our hope in eternity is is secure. Because if God is not ashamed of us, if God's not ashamed of you, what do you have to fear? Really, there's nothing to fear. I mean, there's nothing that people can do to affect your eternity. If God says, I'm not going to be ashamed of Darcy Robine, there's nothing that Darcy can do that she ought to fear. Because, as Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him also before my Father who is in heaven. If we confess God, Jesus will confess us. There's a warning there though, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who's in heaven. So don't be denying him, he'll deny you. But but those who, who accept him and who who affirm him, as it says in verse thirty two, think think about the scene. He says, I, I will confess his name before my Father who's in heaven. So you picture the scene, you're you're standing before the throne of God on judgment day, you're guilty in your sins, but while on earth you profess that you believed in Jesus as the one who took away your sins. And Jesus then says, He confessed me. I will confess Him. I, I know Steve. He wasn't ashamed of me. I'm not ashamed of Him. Father, forgive Him and come, bring Him into the city that You've prepared. In fact, that's the thought of verse 16, right? God is not only not ashamed to be called the God, but He has gone further to prepare a city for them and this so much looks and anticipates the, the heavenly city, the, the new Jerusalem, as it speaks about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. All right, we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. We, here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And, and you tie your Bible together and, and God created a perfect garden and it ends in a city that He's prepared for us. Revelation 21, the, the perfect cube. 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles tall that comes down out of heaven from God has streets of gold, has gates of pearl lined all throughout the city with costly jewels. It's a place of security that has gates open. They're never shut. Meaning it's a place of safety. It's a place of purity because nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination lying will ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will come in. It's a place where God dwells. It's a place where God is prepared for His people, for those who believe in verse 16. You say, why has God prepared a city for us? Well, because we believe in some sense, but really, look at this word in verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a better one. Therefore, right, because they desire something better, God is giving us something better. Notice the link there. Just be, just with desire. God delights in us desiring and longing for, for God and something more than this life. That's what faith is. Longing for God, not for things of the Earth. Like, and so God wants of us to, to desire something more and, and the reality is that there is something more than just this life. Um, I read this week about Winston Churchill and uh, I read about his funeral. It's really a, a great story um, about his funeral. I, I don't know anything about his faith or, or really um, what he had 
plan for his funeral was wonderful. It gives really a great picture, I think, of this, this point here where he's striving, what he's trying to get at here. His funeral took place at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Um, see, I, I looked at a little video this week about the, the big procession that was coming. Winston Churchill was like, you know, bigger than any of our presidents, for sure. Great leader, great man. And uh, I think that just the um, uh, funeral kind of showed that. So he, he had all this, and then at the end of the benediction... He instructed in his funeral that this would be played. Way up high in the rotunda, the, the dome up there, there was a bugler who played that. What's that called? Taps. So what does it signify? It's the end of the day. It's all done. It's all over. Winston Churchill did something really good. He said immediately after that, he says, I want this to play. What's that called? And what does that signify? The beginning. Okay, I'm not sure what everything Winston Churchill meant by that, but think about it as a Christian. What does that mean? What, what a great tradition that would be, right? I've heard taps at many funerals. I've never heard Reveille. But it just says that, yeah, you know what? A day is past, but there is a, a new day dawning. Because though this person may have left this city, there is another city which they are looking forward to and their time has only just begun. I want to call our music team up just right now as we finish the message. I want to, I want to sing one last final song. It really speaks about this whole thing which really sets our, our hope and our minds upon Faith and what this is, is faith in another city. The song is, is called, It Is Not Death to Die. And maybe some of you sing it, we've sung it maybe once or twice before. But it says this, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dim by tears and wake Enjoy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise forevermore. And I do believe that is really the core thrust of verses 13 through 17. That, that, that it goes beyond. That the patriarchs 
died in faith, even though they didn't see anything, they knew that there was something beyond. And we as believers ought to know that as well. That, that even coming our death and final day, yet yeah, taps may be played at our funeral, but Reveille is, is also there, triumphant, that we have entered into the joy of our Master, the joy of, of His rest. And so I just want to end our, our service this morning by singing that song, and uh, then we will come up for a brief time of, of dismissal. So let's sing that together. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close, the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne. Delivered from our fears Oh Jesus Conquering the grave Your precious blood has power to save Those who trust in you Will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. It is not death to cling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not sad to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your prayer. It is not that to die.